We have been looking at what we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 here on Sunday mornings. And as Jesus begins his teaching to the disciples, and therefore to us, because we're disciples, we're followers of Jesus Christ, right? So we need to heed, hear and heed what the Lord is telling us here as well. Uh, the reminder to us is in verse 6, he said, you're going to hear these things, and these are the, like the wars and rumors of war. He says, but be not troubled. The end is not yet. Now, everything he's going to describe is going to, as you read through these verses as we have, it's going to seem kind of troublesome. I mean, bad stuff is taking place here. We often refer to this time period right before the second coming of Jesus Christ and what happens on the earth as the time of tribulation. And yet Jesus is really telling his disciples, and therefore us, that we have the ability to go through tribulation without necessarily having a troubled spirit about it. Now, praise the Lord, we, we know that we're not going to experience personally, firsthand on earth, a lot of the things that are being described here, and we'll come back to that. But in the section that Brother Campbell read for us this morning, then at the end of chapter 24. It's a lot about not knowing that day or hour. It's about scheduling. I don't know about you. I live on a schedule. I would have a very different... I've had some friends over the years that you tell them, hey, can I meet you for coffee or whatever? And like, yeah, what time, what place? And they say, okay. And they just put it right in their mind vault. Well, I've lost the combination to my mind vault long time ago. I'm not sure I ever had one that was good. Uh, and so I have to write everything down. You know, if you see me, uh, I, I use my smartphone a lot to put things into my calendar. That's, that's my lifeline to make sure that I'm not inconsiderate of other people by not being there when I was supposed to be, and getting things done like I was supposed to, because it, it, it's a helpful device in that way. It can be a little annoying sometimes, can it? You know, uh, telling you to do something and, and reminding you uh, in these things. We, uh, I'm getting ready to go uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this coming week up to a pastor's retreat right up here at the Anchorage camp. And signed up for it for quite a while ago, and then I realized, hmm, I know it starts on Tuesday, but I'm not sure what time. And I better contact the camp, and they were very kind to respond back and tell me, you know, what time the first event begins on Tuesday to make sure I'm not there. And that's kind of important, right? Because, I mean, it actually is at like 11 o'clock in the morning, and if I had shown up at 1 o'clock, the unpardonable sin of missing lunch would have happened. <laughs> and so I was glad to know that. So sometimes we need to know some pinpoint data like that, don't we? That's, that's because I needed to make a movement of myself. Sometimes someone tells you, hey, can I stop by? Or you have a drop-in at your house, and you say, yeah, stop by any time. And you know that it's coming, you're just not sure when. So what's the wife doing, you know, making sure that maybe the house is picked up and, you know, that things, maybe there's refreshments to be served. And, and you do that earlier rather than later in anticipation because, you know, might show up at 
you know, five o'clock or six o'clock or something, not sure, but be ready and then maybe do other things, but watchful, watchful about what's happening. We have been working through this chart here, if you would, of eschatological events. Big word, right? Simply means of things to come in the future according to the Bible. And specifically where we're focusing now is where that red box is. The rapture of the church will have already happened. The tribulation will have already happened. That's in the first part of this chapter that we talk through. This is really focusing on that midpoint arrow where it talks about the revelation of Christ. We sometimes refer to that as his second coming. Uh, and, and then there is going to be the thousand-year kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ after that. It's that midpoint, the second coming of Christ, that this text is talking about. We don't know with precision exactly when that's going to happen. If you weren't here last week, I talked about how we, we are able, through other passages of Scripture to realize that there's a 75-day gap between the end of the seven-year tribulation and before the millennial reign of Christ, but we don't know when in those 75 days, and that's why Jesus says we don't know the day nor the hour of when that's going to happen. And of course, we don't even know the year at this point because all this kicks off when, when Jesus raptures the church, and that hasn't happened yet. Once that happens... And then the Antichrist reveals himself, making a covenant with Israel. That begins some calculators for people, right? You can begin to tabulate some things. But even when that seven years is over, we, we still can't say for certain that Jesus is going to immediately return. I know he's going to come back right on that day. No, it could be that day. It could be th three days later. It could be a couple weeks later. It's a two-and-a-half-month window of time that could happen there. And so therefore, God's people who are on planet earth, because there will be believers that will come to Christ through the tribulation period, even though believers that are here now have been raptured up, some will get saved. That's what the 144,000 witnesses are for there. Uh, that are 144,000 witnesses are for. You have the return of Moses and Elijah's prophetic figures that are doing signs and wonders. So people will come to Christ. And so they're going to be excited. These are going to be the ones that don't take the mark of the beast, that don't follow Antichrist. Many of them will be martyred for their faith. But for those that are alive when Jesus returns, oh, what a remarkable time that is. So they are called to really watch without a clock. They don't have, they can't, you know, start their watches, and, you know, like sometimes we have countdown timers, and people are saying this far to the event. Sometimes we have websites that do that, and you have a, you know, a special event coming up. Sometimes people are getting married, and you go, to, and they have a website just for their wedding, and it's counting down the days and the hours and the minutes till the ceremony begins, because they're excited about that. Won't be able to do that with the second coming of Christ, but does that mean that we can't watch? No, we're called to watch according to this passage of Scripture in our Bibles. So how can we do this? And the text gives us really three principles that we want to pull out from what the Lord is teaching both us and his disciples that are seated around him in this situation. The first lesson is this. 
He wants us, the Lord wants us to learn from the outcome of being unguarded. He takes time in these opening verses of what we've read today to talk about people who unfortunately find themselves unguarded, unprepared. They're not watching. Why does Jesus talk about that? So that we will not follow their bad example. So that we will learn what not to do. Sometimes that's a helpful thing, isn't it? To, to see what not to do. As I'm always trying to do certain DIY uh, projects, whether it's fixing something simple on my car or around my house, and go out on the internet and find helpful videos. And sometimes there's candor by these guys that make these videos of, and I tried this and, you know, I made this mistake, don't do that. And I'm like, thank you for sharing what didn't work also. Because I, I might have made that same mistake otherwise. So the exact day and time of Jesus' second coming, we are told is held by God the Father. We have a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Specifically, it's God the Father that knows this. Remember that this passage or this Olivet Discourse, this teaching of Jesus, isn't just in the book of Matthew. It's also in Mark and Luke. And in Mark's gospel, we're told that neither, not only do the angels around the Father not know about this exact day, Father hasn't chosen to disclose that. It's kind of on a need-to-know basis, we might say, and he doesn't feel like his angels, not that they couldn't be trusted, but he hasn't chosen to share that with them. But in Mark 13, 32, it tells us, neither the Son, sometimes people are troubled by how Jesus is the Son of God, right? Yes, he's the Son of God. The Father knows, and yet the Son of God doesn't know. If Jesus is, is God... You know, I thought he knew all things. Well, it's speaking of Jesus in his human state here in a yielded condition. And, and Jesus, we know, forwent many of his divine attributes as that perfect God-man. He never stopped being 100% God while he was on earth. And he was always 100% man while he was on earth. In his human aspect, he was sinless. So unlike us in that way. In his divine state, there was a restrictedness by his own volition and yieldedness to, to not do certain things. And evidently, this was one of them. So while he was on earth and speaking, he didn't, he didn't know. He chose not to, to know and honor the Father's knowledge of that, not his own. I seriously doubt that now that he's returned to be with the Father that this is still the case, that, that he's not in full disclosure. But the Bible doesn't speak to that. But because of the focus on pinpointing things, and we ought to know dates and times and spans of times that the Bible gives to us. We also need to be careful about trying to fix dates and times where the Bible has clearly shrouded that from us. And yet there have been people over the years that have tried to, even with regard to the second coming of Christ, try to pinpoint it, even though Jesus said, it's a closely guarded piece of information. So that tells me right now, I shouldn't even waste my time. Really, I'm not honoring God by pressing him. You know, it's like the little boy. Dad, can you tell me this? No, 
I, I'm going to hold on to this piece of information. I'll tell you when the time is right. For that little boy to keep pestering or, or to make up what he thinks he knows his dad's answer is, is really dishonoring to his father, isn't it? And yet there have been groups over the years. One, one group back in 1844 was led by a religious man by the name of William Miller. William Miller predicted when Jesus would return. He actually pinpointed the day as October 22nd, 1844. Well, there's a bit of a time that has gone by since that day, hasn't there? And he had a large following of people. In fact, they began to be known by other people as Millerites because of their fixation on his leadership. Well, that day came and went, and of course, it didn't happen. And so, you might imagine, they're pretty disappointed. And so, it became, that day became known as the great disappointment by some people. I don't know if they would have called it that, but other people describing this movement. And the movement continued on and became known as Adventism, because it was so focused on the advent of Christ's return to the earth. Now, to save face, they tried to explain away the fact that Jesus didn't return to earth physically as, well, we got one thing wrong. It did happen, but what really happened was Jesus simply entered into the spiritual tabernacle in heaven. Well, that's pretty safe to explain because no one can witness or see or disprove that sort of thing. But the real problem is the Bible is very explicit about what the second coming of Christ looks like. And again, if you were here last Sunday, or if you weren't, you can go back and listen to the message. I mean, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. He's going to cleave it in two. The two halves are going to divide north and south. There's going to be this massive chasm that's going to run from east to west right up to the eastern gate. Jesus, there's, there's going to be a blasting of that gate open so that he can march triumphantly in. Nothing like that has happened, folks, right? So we can safely say... It hasn't taken place yet. Everybody will clearly know, and every eye shall see him. You see, such predictions, some people say, well, you know, is this a big deal? You know, and, and I, I just point out that one because that is one of the early ones that happened, especially in American culture. It's not the only one that's happened, by the way. There's been many books that have been written over the year. But you say, well, you know, there's always people out there that are, are saying things. Let's can we just ignore them and think that they're harmless? I'm not sure we can say that it's harmless. Because every time you have a prediction about making a promise with regard to the Lord's return, and it doesn't happen, does it not tend to make a farce of Christian doctrine in the eyes of the world? You know, have it happen over and over again. It's almost like the, the little story, the nursery story that we learned of the boy that cried wolf. You know, there's an alarm, but the moral of the story is if you keep repeatedly declaring something to be so, and it's discovered by the masses that it's not, suddenly they won't believe anything that you have to say. So we, that's why we want to be doctrinally sound always in what we say. But we need to recognize that these predictions really perhaps are a clever instrument and tool of Satan. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that makes these dates and sets these predictions uh, is a worshiper of Satan. Remember, even Peter was declared by Jesus at one point by his rash behavior as, get thee behind me, Satan. 
His motive, Peter's motive was good, trying to stand up for Jesus in the garden. But at this point, we need to realize it's only helpful if I'm being biblical. It's only good if I'm following God's wishes in this. And so there might be good intentions by people. They might be just enthused about Jesus coming. Well, we ought to be enthused about his coming. But we need to realize there can be great harm that's done. And it can actually uh, confuse people and discredit the Bible and God's promises because they may not time, take time to explore. Well, that doesn't represent all of Christianity. And in fact, the Bible itself says, don't do this. Don't set dates and hours for the return of Jesus Christ. People still perish, even though the warning abounds. Here in this text, Jesus uses the illustration of Noah's flood. Pretty familiar story to most of us, I would imagine. But we need to understand and appreciate what's going on in here. And the, and the whole point is people being caught off guard. You ever read through you know, Genesis 6, 7, and 8 and find yourself just sort of amazed that people were caught off guard, right? Yeah, what's that over there? Oh, there's a guy named Noah. What's he doing? You know, is he building in some sort of condominium or something like that? No, he calls it an ark. What's it for? Is he, you know, creating massive condominiums for people to live in? <laughs> no, he, he's saying that there's going to be this, this cataclysmic event on the earth. God's going to bring judgment because of the wickedness upon the earth. You say, wow, that's amazing. Uh, don't worry about him. He's, he's been at it for 120 years. He's been building and working and preaching. You know, something about a flood, rain, whatever that is. You know, he's nuttier than a fruitcake. And so, the ark is finished. The animals are in. God closes the door. The fountains of the deep are broken up. Water comes from above. And all of a sudden, you can imagine pounding on the outside of the ark, people, some swimming for high ground. In a van sense of vanity, really, it's only a matter of time. But the point of the, what Jesus says is, up until that moment, they just went about their daily routines. And they didn't give any thought to the concerns about God's judgment was coming. It wasn't for a lack of there being warnings given. They were ample warnings, but they had grown hardened. They had grown indifferent to that. You know, people still perish even though the warning abounds to turn from sin to the Savior. If anyone had the, the least inkling to try to find out how to be prepared for eternity... It's not hard to come to the truth in these days, especially. I mean, even, you know, our missionaries tell us, you can go into the, some of the most remote parts of jungles, and you'll find natives sitting around a campfire with smartphones. <laughs> you know, uh, not in every case, but, you know, if, if someone wanted to find out the truth, it's available. And God is wondrously delivering people from their spiritual darkness and bringing them to himself as only God can do by his grace. 
But we need to understand that when the second coming of Christ actually occurs, people will be engaged in daily activities. Notice what it's describing here, verses 40 to 41. It talks about people gleaning in the fields, grinding the grain. This is not talking about the rapture. It's not talking about Jesus coming in the clouds and snatching us up as believers. That's already happened. We understand that. Also, what's happening is being compared to the flood of Noah. And the ones who remain in the story or the account in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 are the few righteous ones of Noah's family. They remain. Notice how I use that word. But it says in verse 39, the flood came and took them all, what? Away. The ones being taken away are not Noah and his family in the ark. The all, the majority, all but eight, are being taken away by the judgment floods of God. So we need to keep that in mind. It refers to the unrighteous outside the ark being swept away by the waters of God's judgment. I make a big point of this because some people will come to this and say, this is talking about the rapture. It's not talking about the rapture. Because in the rapture, the righteous are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. This is a pulling away of people to judgment. We're not called away to judgment in the rapture. We're called to fellowship with the, with the Son of God in heaven, in His presence. Notice the activities of what's going on when the second coming occurs are not distinctively sinful, right? There, is there anything wrong with being out uh, putting, sowing your crops, harvesting the grain, grinding the grain? Is that a wicked activity? It's not a wicked activity. It's not sinful in and of itself. In fact, you could make a case that God requires people that if you don't work, neither should you eat. You know, you need to be doing working activities. So that's not the point of what's being said here, that they're engaged in. And I'm sure many of them are out involved in very wicked activities. The point is their unpreparedness, their laxness. They have no thought could it be today? You know, as we sang as our, our hymn, Jesus is coming again, maybe morning, maybe, maybe noon, maybe evening. You know, it could be soon. It will be soon, right? We understand that. There's a wonderful incident in the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah brings the children of Israel back from captivity to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. But in that vicinity, there were a lot of enemies that were against the Israelites from rebuilding those walls. They did not want there to be a solidarity of Jewish people in a settlement back in the land. Kind of reminds us of what's going on right now, right? You know, they, they hate Israel being there, and they despise Jerusalem. And so, but Nehemiah had a mandate, rebuild the walls. It's from the Lord. And so it tells us in Nehemiah 4.18 that as the workers were on the wall building, you know, they have a trial in one hand, and they're putting down bricks and putting down mortar, or however they did that. It says this, For the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side, and so builded, and he that sounded the trumpet was by me, me being Nehemiah. In other words, 
We're working. We're going about our daily activity, and that's what we're supposed to do. But do you notice this awareness? There's, you cannot say that Nehemiah is unguarded, as we're talking about here. Let's go about our activity. Let's do what God have us to do. But at the same time, let's don't let down our guard in what God has told us to do. Again, in Mark 13, 33, the parallel account to what we're reading here, the command to take heed is actually added uh, by Mark. And Jesus would have said it. Matthew didn't include it in his account. But take heed, be on guard, if you would. Which then brings us into the second point of the lesson that the Lord would have us to learn about watching, even though we don't have a precise clock on this event. And that is, we need to look with vigilance for the Lord's coming. Vigilance. Here are the commands. What does it mean to watch? That's a command. Watch, he says here in our Bibles. It's a command. It's an imperative. Is this sitting on a rooftop with binoculars pointed in the direction of the Mount of Olives today? Do you think that's what he means? No, it's more goes back to the spirit of Nehemiah. I, I don't know if it's today. I don't want to be frivolous with my time. I need to go about doing what God would have me, because it might not be today. And there's been a lot of days that it's gone by, and it wasn't the day. So in Mark 13, Jesus adds the parable of a man going on a journey and warned that his servants needed to keep watch so that he did not find them sleeping when he returned. I'm going to come back. I'm going on a journey. When are you coming back, Lord? Don't worry about that. I'll be back when I'm back, was the idea. You be busy about what you're supposed to be doing. You realize that I could come back at any given day. You ever find yourself going back to the, the, the thought about the rapture? Because that's what you and I, if we're believers, that's what we're first of all looking for, right? You ever find yourself going through your daily life experience, and the thought crosses your mind? How would I feel if Jesus snatched me up, if he came in the air, the trump of God was blown, dead in Christ rise first, and then me, part of those which are alive and remain, are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. What if that happened right now in what I'm doing? You ever find yourself saying, man, I'd be ashamed of myself. I'd be regretful if this is what Jesus caught me doing. Well, there's a little bit of false theology in our brains because Jesus sees everything that we're doing all the time, right? But, but we ought to live with a certain level of vigilance about ourselves is what's being said here. Some have suggested about the Lord's teaching with regard to this master that when the master returned, He's concerned for the lack of vigilance. If the servants didn't notice him, then they probably wouldn't notice a thief showing up either. In other words, hey guys, I just walked in and nobody even noticed. Where's, where's, the, where's the guy that's supposed to be, you know, the lookout? You know, maybe he comes back at nighttime and just kind of walks in. What if I had been a thief, guys? They might have ran off with a bunch of my stuff. You're not being good servants. That analogy of a thief in the night is used other places in our Bible. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 2 Peter 3, 10, 
describes that it's as a thief of night. Does that mean that, that Jesus' second coming is going to happen when the sun is set and it's dark outside? No. It says it's going to happen as a thief in the night. And honestly, just like the days of Noah, people today are so oblivious to the things of the Lord, you know, it, it, could, it could happen after some sort of major religious holiday and people are tending to think more about Jesus and they still be clueless about it. The thief chooses the cover of dark to keep and conceal his, his bad deeds. We know that Jesus isn't doing anything evil or mischievous. But the point is this. Vigilance is not natural during this time. It has to be intentional. So much time is going by. Let's just go back to the days of Noah. You, don't you think that after about 100 years of hearing Noah preaching that you would think, I don't think this is ever going to happen. I just don't ever think this is going to happen. Maybe even some of his family had thoughts pop in their mind from time to time. You know, maybe his wife. Are you sure you heard the Lord right? Right? Now, the God, if you go back and read the text, we're told that God tells him that the time of man is going to be 120 years. So he's given some anticipation of an approximation of when that's going to be. The point is, after a while, people get numb. The only way you're going to stay vigilant is if you really, by faith, believe that God said it, so it must be so. Folks, we're in the year 2022. It's been a long time since Jesus ascended into heaven. And if the thought never crossed your mind in your Christian life, you know, it's tough, you know. I mean, the, back in Jesus' day, the disciples were looking for his appearing. And we're still looking for his appearing. Is it going to be another 2,000 years? I don't know. But I do know this. God has always showed himself to be verified by his word. His promises have always come true. And whether it's this afternoon or whether it's another 2,000 years from now, God will keep his word. It will happen. So the way to stay vigilant isn't just natural reaction. We have to say, I need to intend to stay vigilant. Don't you think some of those workers on the wall got tired of that sword? We've been up here. Nothing has happened. You know, can I just put the sword down? It'd be so much easier. Every time I bend to get more mortar, it pokes me, right? That hilt, that sword just pokes me. You know, and sometimes as Christians, we get lulled into a false sense of security, and we lose our spirit of vigilance. We go into the day. We're not prayed up. We're not asking God to give us His Spirit to guide us. We're not resting in His grace. We're just kind of launching out in our own strength. Because you know what? I've lived the Christian life enough years. I think I can handle the day. Whoops. Big mistake, right? We need to be vigilant every day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 tells us that there's going to be very little vigilance when Christ returns because those who had previously heard the truth, heard Bible messages, maybe they've been even surfing the internet, came across messages from churches like ours, and they heard the truth, but they were like, you know, I'm just not ready. So therefore, they put it off, which is rejection, you know. Remember, if you procrastinate, that's still an initial rejection. Label it for what it is. 
you're still saying no. You say, well, I'm saying no for now. It's still no. It's still no. You're rejecting God. And God doesn't promise you the next day. And so there will be people that will hear the Word of God, reject it, and the Bible tells us that God Himself, not Satan, God will send those people as strong delusion so that they will believe the lie of Antichrist. Well, that's unkind. You heard the truth. Why didn't you believe it when you heard it? Don't lose that vigilance. Jesus told His disciples in Luke 12, 35, Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Girded loins was the practice of taking your loose, flowing, robe-like garments, pulling from the, the low part behind and lifting up and tucking into the waistband. Say, so why would they do that? Well, if they were involved in activity where they needed to move around and not be tripping up in their skirts, they would gird their loins in that way. It showed a readiness. It showed an anticipation for activity. When it talks here about your lights burning, it's a reference to making sure you have enough oil to perpetuate the light from the lamp. You might remember the parable Jesus tells about the ten virgins, five were wise. Why? Because they understood, I need to have oil when the bridegroom shows up. The foolish virgins just burn it all up. When the bridegroom came, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, they were out. They went searching for extra uh, source of oil. In the meantime, they missed out. The lesson for us in either case is to have vigilance. And it does not want to find us idle or sedentary in our Christian lives. 1 Peter 1.13 teaches that we should have the loins of our minds. Remember what I said about girding up the loins? meant. But Peter says, do that mentally. You, you know, how, how does that work? What do you mean, gird up the loins of your mind? Are there thought processes? Are there things that occupy your brain? your mental activity, that are loose, that potentially could trip you up. They're maybe not wicked, evil, lustful thoughts in of themselves, but they might be vanity. You say, you know what, I need to be busy tucking in some things mentally in my mind because I'm not as sober and as vigilant when it comes to the things of the Lord. Are my thoughts running free in an undisciplined way? That characterizes a lot of our society today, folks. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are getting caught up in that. Frivolous, wasteful vanity of thought. And we need to say, you know what? This really doesn't have any place for me as a watchful believer. I need to be careful about that. Are you spending improper amounts of time and mindless amusements that can trip you up in the Lord's service and making the strides that He would desire? I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything in the form of amusement, relaxation, fun. But I am saying we do need to be very cautious always. Am I becoming imbalanced? Do I have some preoccupations that are unhealthy for my vigilance with regard to my relationship with Christ? So Jesus punctuates this particular section of his message by telling those who will not actually experience his second coming, right? These disciples, none of them are around still. They all died. The ones he's talking to here on Mount, Mount Olivet. And yet he tells them, 
be ye also ready. He's talking to the Jewish population at large, and then he looks at them and he says, guys, be, you guys also be ready. That kind of struck me a little odd. Why is he telling them to be ready when he already knows they're not even going to be around when this happens? It means that living in that sense of spirit of vigilance is not wasted on those people who won't actually participate in the event when it happens. Oh, that helps me. You know why? I'm not going to be around for the second coming either. If you know Christ as your Savior right now, you won't be here for the second coming of Christ. Why? Because you got caught up. I got caught up in the rapture. But still, with regard to the second coming, I'm still being called to be ready to live with that day, that teaching in mind. Just a single epistle, 1 Peter, reminds us of the value of being ready, being vigilant. Let me just give you three verses, and I'm going to tell you in each verse what the benefit is from daily vigilance, a continuous spirit. Number one, confidence. 1 Peter 1.3, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. We referenced this already. Be sober, and then notice, hope to the end. Hope is the idea of confidence. It hasn't happened yet. There's prophetic events to happen, but you can have confidence. How can I have confidence? Because I have confidence in God's truth and His Word. There's intercession, 1 Peter 4, 7, just a couple chapters later. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch on what? Prayer. This ought to drive me, knowing that there is certainty of the second coming of Christ, knowing that I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. It ought to drive me in a sense of imperativeness in my prayer life. Praying for unbelievers, praying for the gospel ministry, praying for missions to be effective, praying the Lord of the harvest, He would send laborers into His harvest, praying that God would raise up in America more young men to answer the call to preach because there is a dearth of pastors in America and churches are closing their doors every day because there isn't those servants that are saying, Here am I, Lord, send me. And that all comes from thinking, Jesus is coming again. What the world is about to face is very sad and serious. I need to be praying about that. Thirdly, in 1 Peter 5, 8, victory for me. He says, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. He's prowling every day. He's not locked up in hell. He's the prince in the power of the air. He's very stealth in what he does, is he not? He's very clever. He knows the Bible. He knows how to quote Scripture. You see that in Genesis. You see that in Matthew 4 when he tempts Jesus Christ. He is an angel of light. Folks, we must be vigilant. Thirdly, Jesus tells us we need to live for the blessing of being prepared. He uses this parable to describe the resulting condition of being blessed. He just talked about this this. A man that owns this compound property, probably fields and flocks, going on a journey, coming back. And then he says, I'm going to tell you about one segment of those servants. Not all servants may be able to identify with this, but some of them will be considered blessed, right? Some of them will be considered blessed. And that's what he says in verse 46. 
Blessed is that servant, the particular servant, who, when his Lord, when he cometh, shall find him so doing. Find him doing what? Being watchful, being faithful, behaving with the mindset, my master could come back at any time. Part of the blessedness is greater responsibility and opportunity regarding the master's possessions. He says in verse 47, That person, he shall make him ruler over all his goods. You know, God practices the principle of what I call the proving ground. You know what a proving ground is? It's where you do a little testing initially before you take it full scale. Wise businesses do this. You know, if if they're going to come out with a Marchino cherry licorice milkshake for Chick-fil-A, they're not just going to disperse it all of their restaurants only to find out nobody's buying this. And, and the ones that are, they're getting a little nauseous. They're going to do a little beta testing. They're going to take a small group and find out, wow, surprisingly enough, everybody loves this Marchino, you know, licorice, black licorice uh, milkshake that we're doing. So now let's roll it out. You know, it, it works the same way here. In Luke 16.10, Jesus said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. The least is the proving ground, right? The much is the full scale rollout to the masses. And then he reverses it. And by the way, he that is unjust in what is least is also unjust in what is much. Lord, I can handle it. Bring it on. I'll show you what I can do. Let me start you with this. By the way, that's why the Bible tells within a church, and you have people serving in a church, it says, don't lay hands on any man suddenly. You know, they walk in and say, hey, it's my first day. I'm, I'm joining the church. By the way, can I, can I teach your adult Sunday school class next week? Whoa, put the brakes on. Let's pump the brakes a little bit here. You know what you can do? We have a men's group. Why don't you bring a devotional? You know, uh, why don't you and I meet for coffee? Let's talk about the word. What, what, is a, what we call today a vetting process, right? That's what's going on here. Our all-knowing God has full knowledge of our reliability. God himself can do what we can't do. God can look and say, I know you're going to come through for me in the, in the big scheme of things, or you're not. And yet, though God has that knowledge... He still chooses to run us through the paces, right? David becomes king of Israel, but where did he start, folks? Man, these few sheep, and even his brothers kind of mocked him a little bit, you know, when he showed up. With whom have you left those few sheep, you know? Father just gave you this very incidental thing. Well, you won't learn to shepherd people till you learn to shepherd animals, right? So it was a great learning experience for him. God is glorified when we come to see things as he does. It isn't about God needing to see it and it's like, okay, I wasn't sure if you were going to come through, but now you have. So why did, why did Moses shepherd for 40 years before he led the children of Israel? It, it, it was for Moses' benefit. 
It was for David's benefit. Why does God give us certain tasks and you think, Lord, this is one that wasn't what I thought you were going to have me do when I said I'll serve you or do anything you want me to do. I, I kind of thought you were going to do this, but you, you've given me this. You know, pastor asked if there was someone that could help, you know, clean the bathrooms once a week. Yeah, that's not what I signed up for, Lord. <laughs> you know? Now, he comes and asks me to do something else. You know, it really reveals something about us, doesn't it? There's a teaching period, that which is least. You know, by the way, this is only for man's perspective benefit. Where God is concerned, there is no least. If you're doing something for the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a grand and glorious service, is it not? Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as unto who? As unto the Lord. And so I remember... When I was going through grad school, seminary, and I, I needed work. Well, during one summer, you know, I was asked to do some programming work, write some software for their day camp program. I'm like, got it, love it. Another summer, I was asked to be in charge of a small contingency of junior high boys cleaning all the restrooms on campus. Really, Lord? I mean, not only am I doing bathroom duty, I've got junior hires, okay? That's tough. Now, I've since learned that there is an excellency to junior hires and middle schoolers. But in my state of mind at that point, you know, the Lord was using that to test me, proving ground. And I see the wisdom in that. So what is our blessedness? Right now, being vigilant busy about whatever he calls us to do. Am I being faithful in my finances and tithing to the Lord, giving, trusting? Or, or am I, you know, really bent up with anticipation and anxiety? Well, I would give, but I'm concerned about the economy. So, Lord, when the economy changes and interest rates drop, then I can get Oh, wait a minute. Am I being faithful with that which is least? Is this a proving ground for me? The blessed person says, I'm going to trust and be faithful and be obedient to the Lord. It's sad when people make decisions based more on the indicators of the present rather than the imperatives of the future. What do I mean by imperatives? What God's Word teaches. I go into the Bible, I see God's promises, I see what He says is going to happen, how life works and operates. I need to take my eyes off of the circumstances of the present that might dissuade me from stepping out and being a faithful steward to him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 11 talks about the blessed thought for us being found in a, just a few verses here. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. If you know Christ is your Savior, you don't have to worry about the lake of fire. God hasn't picked you to go there. He hasn't appointed unto you to wrath. But to what? To obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to do with that thought? Just, okay, I heard it once, I'm done with it. No. He says, comfort yourselves together with that thought. Say, what does that look like? Well, being blessed means that you are regarding the coming of the Lord with a sense of, I've got much to look forward to. It's not going to be cast into utter darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth like it describes at the end verse here. 
intentionally engaging in discussions. I gather together. I have a little bonfire with some of the folks uh, here in the church. Hey, let's share some testimonies. You know, I just want to praise Jesus that he drew, the Father drew me to my Savior. And as, as, as pastor's been going through, you know, this about the second coming and the tribulation, it just makes me so thankful all over again that he has chosen me and drew me to himself. And I'm not going to face that. I praise God for that. I, I want to be a good steward of this life that I have in Jesus Christ. You know, there's much that is very ominous about prophetic end-time things, right? I mean, you read through book Revelation thinking, wow, disturbing, disturbing, disturbing. Yeah, if you're not prepared. I feel for those that aren't. It is the motivation for me and compassion, as Jude talks about, of some having compassion, making a difference, of looking at them saying, I don't want my neighbors to go through that. I don't want their children to go through that. I want to reach them with the gospel so that they will raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they will grow up to serve Jesus and teach their children and grandchildren so that when Christ does come, they'll be caught up together in the air. They won't have to go through tribulation and face that judgment at the end following the second coming of Christ. Folks, we don't need a precise clock time in a day to know that it's going to happen and to motivate us right now to live as believers with the right response to what is ahead. May God help us to be faithful with what he's entrusted in our hands. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that what I've offered up here today is helpful, would find its way as truth from your word to teach our souls help guide our minds, Lord, that it would shape us in how we live as stewards so that we can say, we're blessed. I am a blessed servant. I want to live that way. I don't want to live in an unguarded way. I don't want to get caught off guard even as a believer. I want to be sober, be vigilant. I want to live in confidence. I want to live with an intercessory prayer life that is dynamic and purposeful, and caring for other people. So, Father, I pray that you would challenge us as believers, but if there's anyone here, Father, that does not know Christ as their Savior, please, Father, draw them to the Son, even today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.